4: This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into uh, the second half of uh, this week's edition of Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Our weekly roundtable includes our uh, panel of political pundits uh, for today's edition. Our roundtable regulars (coughs) are uh, on the left, Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki. Paul, welcome back. Always good to be here. And on the right, longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter. Henry, welcome back to you as well. Uh, thank you, Tom. And joining us for this week's edition, East Village Magazine Consulting Editor Jan Worth Nelson. Jan, welcome back. Thanks for being here.
5: Thank you so much, Tom. It's good to be with you all.
4: Um Attorneys for former Michigan Governor Rick Snyder and four others charged in criminal cases stemming from the Flint water crisis will appeal to the U.S. Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, a ruling made last week by a U.S. District Court judge. The ruling last week required them to answer questions they were asked in past depositions during a civil trial relating to the water crisis. Does the fact that these potential witnesses have answered questions for depositions make them obligated to testify in court when summoned?
3: Hmm. I don't know. If um, One sidebar thought is I'm wondering if, as a defense strategy for some of these folks, if there's something trying to run out the clock. I mean, these yeah. these cases have been dragging on for so long. I wonder if it's... Yeah. Uh, if it's, it, would, it would have been nice to ask J.D. last week as a, as a lawyer... Whether or not that's a common defense strategy is just to drag things out so by the time you get to get the trial, people will have forgotten about the issue. I don't know.
4: Well, another, another quick one that's kind of related, and, and I'm, I'm sort of playing the lightning round to get caught up here a little bit. A U.S. District Court judge will allow a key witness for the plaintiffs in a civil lawsuit stemming from the Flint water crisis to testify virtually. After attorneys in the case said he had concerns regarding COVID-19, Judge Judith Levy on Wednesday granted a motion seeking to allow Miguel del Toro, who is considered a key figure and whistleblower in the water crisis, to testify remotely due to his concerns over contracting COVID-19. The motion was filed by attorneys representing the families of four children who are suing uh, two engineering companies for alleged Negligence involving the water crisis. How significant is Del Toro's testimony in all legal aspects of the Flint water crisis?
1: What's his role? What's he his was role? a
3: central figure in so many ways.
4: I yeah,
1: but wh- what did he do? How is he associated with the city of Flint?
4: He is uh. the first one to test water and discover it did not meet federal standards ah, yes. he reported, Very he reported on it he was reassigned to another office by his superiors and um, it was because of what he had done that Mark yeah. Edwards from Virginia Tech came to town mm-hmm. and it was also del Toro's thing I, I don't know if people even remember this Kurt uh, Guyette who was uh, he was doing an investigative um, reporting piece uh, for the ACLU on Flint surrounding the emergency manager Mm -hmm. yeah and he came across del Toro's memo and reported on it and he was literally the first journalist to mention a problem with the flint municipal mm. water supply although lots of other media outlets got awards and took credit for it later but he he was actually the first but it was based on del Toros uh original uh testing of flint water
1: yeah you know those kind of things are very critical now here's the person that's authorized to do the testing is he has got sole responsibility and reporting out on it, but if his
3: yeah, hands work, become tied,
4: the, was it the EPA, Paul?
3: That I think Coral
4: so. worked for, and, and I he believe was, so. Uh, I, I'm. I
3: think that's all uh, so right. Yeah,
1: he has primary authority to make the reports and to distribute them. Uh, if he got jerked out of that position, then there's an irregularity.
3: But, but I say he was a central figure in so much of the early yeah. early issues around the water crisis. Yeah. That,
4: uh, well, and and that reassignment that happened to him, he was in the Chicago uh, office, yeah. the regional office of the EPA, and mm-hmm. his um, supervisor, if I remember correctly, was uh, dismissed as a result of that yeah. action, mm. that reassignment. That's, that's how things should
1: legally happen. And nobody gets hurt, but everybody gets their due, and justice is done.
4: Well, Governor Greg Whitmer signed a bill in Grand Rapids on Wednesday that uses billions of dollars in federal funds to improve state drinking water, sewers, parks, roads, dams, and Internet service. (laughs) while helping renters and homeowners financially harmed by the COVID-19 pandemic. Senate Bill 565, which passed with strong bipartisan support, appropriates just more than $4.7 billion, of which close to $572 million comes from the state's general fund. Once again, we've proven that in Michigan, Republicans and Democrats can work together to get things done, Whitmer said ahead of the bill signing, Where she was joined by lawmakers from both parties and local officials. Is this really setting the stage for more bipartisan cooperation in Lansing? We hope so. It's been, you
1: know what, it's it's been long overdue. And thanks to the war in Europe that that's happening, Uh, we we need to close the gaps, guys. We need to uh, become one uh, decision making body. And we need I, to work for the American people.
3: Like I said, them. I hope you're right, Henry, although I, I remain skeptical about how long it'll last. But it's wow. true. Here and there, even in Michigan here, we, especially on budgetary issues, we have had some genuine bipartisan working together, but it unfortunately is more the exception than the rule.
1: Yeah, but we've we got to hope that, yeah, but I hope you're that, right, that we can do this for our own survival.
3: Yeah.
4: Well, the Michigan Republican Party is releasing a new election year ad that says Governor Gretchen Whitmer failed to keep her signature 2018 promise to fix the damn roads. The 60-second digital ad juxtaposes public statements by Whitmer with video of frustrated drivers and ravaged roads. Whitmer has spent the last four years talking nonstop about fixing the damn roads while doing little to actually make auto travel easier for Michigan drivers, Ron Weiser, the state GOP chairman, said in a news release made available to the Free Press Monday. According to estimates from the Michigan Transportation Asset Management Council, the percentage of all Michigan roads that are in poor shape today, around 40%, is about the same as when Whitmer was elected, though the percentage of roads in good shape has ticked up by four percentage points. The ad is largely a bad-faith attack since Republicans rejected Whitmer's 2019 proposal to significantly increase the state fuel tax to boost road funding. And the GOP never offered a counter-proposal, said pollster Ed Sarpolis of Target Insight in Lansing. But it is a criticism that will likely resonate with many motorists during the rapidly approaching speed thaw and freeze cycle that is particularly hard on Michigan roads, he said. Um, and, and, you know, the, the person who wrote this article completely missed the uh, significance of the fact that now everybody's trying to um, hold fuel taxes back.
3: <laughs> right exactly yeah. so,
4: so may, maybe the republicans not buying into that fuel tax thing maybe that wasn't such a mistake after all but um, but but the real question is what kind of condition is the road to re-election in for Governor Whitmer
3: hmm. well I mean I, I think the roads going to be an issue but there's, there are orange barrels all over the place so work is being done uh, I think historically, though, she's got one advantage, and that is that we've we've given governors a, a second term without exception since about the early 1960s. So that that works in her favor. And I think the other issue is it depends upon who the Republicans eat, you know, generate as their candidate out of those uh, 13 or so other potential candidates. So I mean, I think it's generally the odds are in favor of an incumbent governor. But again, this is an anti-incumbent kind of a season, and there may be maybe a tougher race than usual.
1: Yes, you know, I uh, the roads will be an issue, but uh, logic has to play uh, its role in this. Where would the money have come from if Republicans in Washington and and Democrats in Washington and those same couple? In michigan didn't work together to solve this problem because one cannot solve it without the other well so, uh,
3: that you know well, one interesting point i think that that article that tom read i think or this or a similar article made <clears throat> is that uh... the governor's in charge of state roads but very often some of the worst roads are the local roads yes. and she'll yes. get the blame for it but she may not really have the responsibility for taking care of local streets and and other similar local roads which are also in pretty poor shape.
1: Roads are classified, guys. I used to be on the Michigan Travel Commission. Roads are classified as the primary roads are your national roads. They get primacy and funding and, and maintenance. Secondary roads like Michigan fall into the second category, the category of interest and, and uh, funding. And primary roads like where I live... Which is a dirt road in Petford Township. Uh, right. It's uh, a. <laughs> yeah, it's just a uh, guy awesome who's in charge right now of it's a over the street. That's but I wouldn't, right. I wouldn't trade it for all of the paved roads all over because in the spring uh-huh. and summer it's beautiful. Uh huh. Yeah. And I don't well, have to worry about all of the higher taxes.
5: So I think uh, going back to Whitmer a little bit, she's. I had I had accidentally put myself on mute. By the way, if you're wondering why I wasn't saying anything, Uh, but um, I did wonder. Did you? (laughs) She's taken some blowback uh, because of the change in the auto insurance law. Uh, I, I find that interesting. That you know, all of us got these refunds, or most of us got our refund checks that I didn't really even know was coming. Did you all get refund checks?
3: Not mm-hmm. yet. I'm I, still waiting for mine. I haven't got
1: mine. I think it's because I'm a Republican. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, these are Democratic <laughs> refund checks. <right? laughs> That's funny. Oh, boy.
5: Well, mm. I got double then. Um, but she's uh, getting some blowback from some Democrats that that whole reform package was rushed through, they contend, and that it um, damages um, funding for Uh, victims of auto accidents.
3: Yeah, yeah.
5: So uh, I just, I don't know if that's enough to, um, you know, affect her chances of getting another term, but I've I've been surprised at sort of the strong vitriol that some of my Democratic friends have expressed about her role in that auto insurance reform package and the effects it's had on, like, people that do home care for um, incapacitated people.
4: But that's so often the problem, Jan. These are tough decisions to make. Yeah. Everyone on both sides of the aisle believed that Michigan needed insurance reform. Something had to change. We had the highest auto insurance in the country. And so with, you know, the the, influence, with the, the assistance of, Detroit Mayor, um, oh, his name just jumped right out of my head. Um, Duggan.
5: Sorry. Duggan? Oh, yeah, yeah.
4: Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, some members of the legislature, the governor worked toward coming up with a compromise with the insurance companies, with the Republicans you know, to and, and one of the things that had to be traded in order to bring the cost down was this unlimited fund for right.
3: um
4: catastrophic
3: right. settlements.
4: Uh huh. And so that money was reduced and then the insurance companies agreed since they had less risk they would drop their prices. The thing that went awry is Democrats decided they really loved that catastrophe. We'll pick this up when we come back.
6: I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters.
4: The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov.
2: Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Vi from the Blue Blues. Lions.
1: Dan
5: Thurling.
2: Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Jonah Navode. Woodrow
0: Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow.
4: State Senator Jim Annonic, comedian Brian McCree.
2: The
0: unknown comic Mark
3: Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You you've always got great questions and you know the material and you and you care about it, and it's uh it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that.
2: <laughs>
4: hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all
6: Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
3: Hello,
2: this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
4: Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we continue with Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. And uh, the conversation has been going by so fast, I keep crashing into the uh, automated brakes today. Um <laughs> So I think it was only fair that I, that I took a turn at being cut off here this last time. Um but uh I'd like to finish what I was saying. We were talking a little bit about um the uh insurance uh, reform in Michigan and and uh how that's likely to impact the governor's re-election uh, bid. And I, I was making the point that um, while everyone wanted insurance reform, nobody could agree on how to do it. Once an agreement was made, the Democrats decided that they um, really didn't like the idea of reducing the catastrophic uh, uh, what uh, fund that the state had for uh catastrophic uh, claims um, accident claims and the insurance companies decided that um despite what they'd agreed to they really didn't want to reduce the rates that much yeah and so we really didn't get cheaper car insurance we lost the fund and that's why um i think a lot of people largely democrats are uh, pushing back on the governor for going along with it um which Jan brought up before. Yeah, that. I, I
3: haven't seen a dramatic change in in our insurance car insurance rates. Uh, I think just paid them last month, and I, 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 it was not dramatically different than it was in past years.
5: Right, mine is neither, but I have heard that some people did get their rates raised.
4: And um, and as far as the as the checks, that was um, I'm not sure. Actually, I can't remember where that money is coming from exactly. It is the result of the changes made in all of the funding and so on that, that had to do with uh, insurance rates in, in Michigan. Um, and, and essentially, it's, it's kind of uh, it's kind of a bribe.
3: You know, to forget that
4: we're not happy with the uh, the way the insurance thing turned around. So here's a four hundred dollar check, and you know.
3: Yeah, that. and it's a, it's a handy during a campaign, an election year, it's a handy thing to get a check in the mail. But one question I have is, I wonder. I mean, what do other states do different than we do? I mean, are, are do we simply provide much greater coverage than most states do? Why is it that Why? We're the highest in the nation? I I really don't have the answer to that.
1: Uh, lawsuits, the limits are higher.
3: In Michigan, you're saying, compared yes. to every other state?
1: I still have a million dollars. I think it move down to the 500000 I still have, I'm like a Democrat there. <laughs> <laughs> There's, um,
4: I think it has something to do with uh, the structure of no fault insurance.
3: Yeah, I, I, I've heard that reference. Like, if I just wonder. And I I'll mean, tell you what else. Other states that are very similar have lower rates, and I just wonder what they do different.
4: Well, for one thing, they don't mandate insurance. oh, yeah. It's not illegal. So the insurance companies literally have to compete to get you to buy insurance. Mm. Hmm. Hmm. You go up, uh, you know, I just happen to know about this uh, because of Sandy and, and her kids, and they're up in the UP right on the, the Michigan-Wisconsin border. And the insurance is in in Wisconsin, car insurance is about 20% of what it is in Flint.
5: Wow. wow. Gee. That's amazing. Yeah. Huh.
4: And How you don't you have to that? buy I mean, you can't get arrested for not having it. You would
3: think so that what would almost,
4: happens when a person is hurt or
1: killed. No, you would, you would think
3: you would think the fact that you don't have to buy would almost push up the race because the the larger yeah. your base right. the lower the cost for the in each individual. If you yeah. require everybody you to, think, to lower the cost for everybody. You would
4: think, but but yeah. as it turns out in Michigan for example where you are forced to have insurance the insurance companies don't look at that as we have more customers so, you know, we have that we can divide the risk more, is they can't go anywhere. We can charge them whatever we want. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the states where they don't have that... I I, I get
3: flyers from, from other insurance companies saying, you know, take a look at our rates and check out this company kind of stuff. I get that periodically in the mail and so the company yes, so for your business. Now, but, in the
4: states where yeah. they don't have mandated car insurance, uh-huh. I'm sure there are some health-related. Yeah, I, I wonder.
3: Do the other states offer the same kind of health protection we offer for emergency of rooms? For example,
4: yeah. are picking up the tab for um. injuries that aren't covered by any insurances.
3: Because I, I I sometime back I saw a list of of rates around the nation and not only were we number 1 but we were substantially ahead of the other states it wasn't just by a small margin it was a significant jump between Michigan and and the number 2 or number 3 states down the road uh, at least a couple of years ago
4: Oh yeah Michigan so, has has historically been at the very top
3: Yeah
5: how did we luck out? I guess we save on our, our real estate, but here in Flint, we pay high water rates, and you, and you're saying that our you know our our insurance rates are really high. Yeah. So how do we? How, can we? Do we blame our elected officials over the last thirty years for all of this?
1: Well, let let me step out on something now, you see. <laughs> Notice how much we have lost the manufacturing base.
5: Yeah. This. That's- County, yeah, for that's example, true. that's true.
1: had 77,000 employees, General Motors employees, yeah. high wages, yeah. and we couldn't live with that. We said up and down. We had a couple up and downs and strikes and stuff like that in 55 to 60, and then we said, well, you know what we need? We need to diversify. We need to bring in Walmart and Kmart and help us distribute redistribute the money already here. They don't make any products that somebody in Ohio wants or Tennessee wants or Russia. They only take our money and redistribute it. And we had the highest wages in the world in 1970.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: And somehow we didn't hold with that. And there were people in this community wanted to give people their workers a guaranteed annual wage. Can you imagine that? We were killing ourselves and uh, those people have left now. They provided a great um, system of life for all of us who lived here. And, yeah. uh, and now that's all gone. And that's affected everything else that we do in the state. And it's not always the politician, it's something that we, we have to come together to strategize to solve the problem.
4: Well, one We've of the we lost are- three
1: or four congressional districts, we lost the population, so.
4: You know, Michigan, you Michigan went through a period much like California has, uh, has gone through where because of industries that were making really big money and salaries were really good, it drove the prices up on everything. Yes. Basically because oh. we could afford it. Then all of a sudden, yes. you know, the, um, we were kind of a one-horse town and the horse died.
3: Yeah, and I, yeah. Did, did anybody see the list this past week that I think Flint would ranked a nationwide the lowest average house price by somebody's estimation? Some huh. realtors have done a survey, and <laughs> Flint ranked lowest in the nation in terms of the average house price. I believe that. I was can correct. see why. <laughs> Boy, that drive around, well, yeah,
5: that's one of the best things about being here. You know that we can live in these nice houses. I and <laughs> the trouble is. <clears throat> Even Afghani refugees don't want to come to Flint, I've heard. <laughs> but <clears throat> but we have these nice houses. It, it's really a great thing. Yeah. Yes. Have you guys heard that Afghani refugees have turned down coming to Flint because they, they've heard bad things about the town? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I haven't
3: heard that.
1: <laughs> yes. I, I, I would well, guess that. I didn't hear it. But I would guess it because we are our own enemies.
5: Because he down. Uh, that's city. true yeah.
4: Well, hmm. Well, we've mentioned this uh, earlier in the in the show, and and I wanted to bring it up and comment on it a little bit because I'm concerned about what it says. Uh, Representative Fred Upton of Michigan, one of the ten House Republicans to vote for impeachment against former President Donald Trump, announced on the House floor Tuesday. ...that he was not running again for Congress. Even the best stories have a last chapter. This is it for me, he said. I've done the zillions of airline miles back and forth. I've signed over a million letters, cast more votes while in the Mm -hmm. chamber here... ...and accomplished what I set out to do with more unfinished work still yet to come. Upton was on track to be forced into a Republican-on-Republican race... ...due to state redistricting in Michigan... Upton reflected on his long tenure in Congress and expressed a wish that civility will prevail in politics. What are the chances of civility in Washington if the civilized people leave?
5: Hmm. Yeah, I know. I thought that statement you just read was sort of poignant. I mean, it just sounded exhausted. You know, it sounded. he really did?
3: Yeah, I, I saw the I saw the coverage of it.
5: Well, and they've changed his district.
4: So you know, in order to campaign, he's got to reorganize his staff and 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 work a different district. He's going to run run
3: against an an incumbent Republican as well.
4: He's going to run against an incumbent Republican who didn't (laughs) vote for Trump's impeachment. Yeah, and you know, he's probably just looking at you know a lot more work than the job is worth to him anymore. And
1: that's
5: troubling. Mm -hmm. It is troubling, yeah.
1: Yeah, but, but, you know, people who are elected to uh, office, it's not guaranteed a lifetime position. Things do change. And and, uh, it's not designed necessarily to change the way it has. But we recondition ourselves to the outcome and get back in the role if we want to. And keep going, because life goes on through all these changes. And uh, Brad should stay in there and run against the incumbent Republicans. Somebody will come out of this.
5: Well, I mean, Tom's point, it sounded like, was that he regards Fred Upton as one of the moderate civilized legislators. Fred
1: was my guest in Genesee County at
5: one time.
3: And, yeah, Dan Kiley had a very nice statement about him. You know, talking about how he could reach across the aisle very, very effectively. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Did you know that he was he's he was born, born born? I don't remember what country. No. But he he moved. They moved here in the fifties. I think
5: mm-hmm. he told huh. me. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean? Going back to maybe Tom's point, Tom. Maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but that somebody who is moderate and and has a reputation for working across the aisle is likely to be replaced, at least at the primary, with somebody who is buying the Trump line. Uh, You know, Fred stood up for the truth when he, uh, and what he considered to be the right thing to do when he voted for the impeachment. And uh, that certainly is not going to be who's going to replace him if it's a Republican. Yeah. That's, you know, That's isn't that your more point? division
3: and more partisanship. I'm afraid, unfortunately. Well,
4: it was. If how how do we expect reasonable behavior if all the reasonable people leave?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, but we we're not guaranteed that his uh, the person on the other side is going to win.
5: No, just
1: because uh, he would be endorsed by the president, the former president. Okay, the people out there thinking this through—they're not just. Uh, you know, <laughs> Whistling Dixie, people are thinking about this process throughout the country. Yeah. Even the Democrats are thinking about it. Well,
3: I yeah, I mean, there are some Democrats <laughs> who are arguing that by putting up all these pro-Trump folks, it may actually help Democrats. I'm not sure that's going to be true, but
5: I'm you, can, you sure. can hear those
3: arguments from some Democrats. Like, oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah. All these pro-Trump folks are going to be easier to beat. Maybe, but know, I'm not so sure about it.
5: I don't know if you, did did any of you see the Ken Burns uh, thing about um, uh, Ben Franklin the last two nights? Oh it, no! It, no, it was I didn't. So good. Tell it was me. So timely. It was so timely, and you know, at the end of the second show, it's two nights of two hours each. Um, they tell the story about when Ben Franklin, in his later years, was um, asked by a woman uh, who was a fan of his you know, how do you feel about all the changes? I guess it was after the Constitution was finally ratified. And he said, uh, well, it's a republic if we can keep it.
1: You yeah, I-, I remember that. I'm
5: sure. And, and, and that, I I, can't, I don't have the exact context right, but that quote, it's a republic if we can keep it, right. is um, because he, belie- you know, he's made a big switch. he started out kind of as a, As a loyalist to the crown, so to speak, in his early life, and then you know made this interesting transition from being considering himself British to considering himself American, and that was a huge thing. Uh, And he thought that the republic was the way to go if we can keep it. I just I feel like boy, that's so relevant to where we're at now, isn't it?
3: I think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't Franklin's son remain loyal to the king and stay in England? He did.
5: He. Oh, it's so it's heartbreaking and interesting. His son William ended up being exiled oh, he was in prison they he got put in prison uh for eight months and uh was um he became sort of what they characterized as a terrorist uh, uh after he after he was in prison after he got out and then he ended up going to england and Ben Franklin only saw him once more in his life and uh he basically made him sign a bunch of legal papers saying. He, he wasn't going to have access to any of Ben Franklin's stuff. Mm. So every, Ben Franklin's whole legacy uh, went to his uh, grandson, right, his grandson's. It was, it's a really interesting. And it, and it shows this whole um, transition between people thinking of themselves as British and thinking of themselves as Americans and what that meant, what change that was. That's really good. It's very balanced. They really critique Ben Franklin. They showed a lot of his dark side, you know. And so, uh, uh, anyway, I would recommend it. Especially, it's so timely for right now.
4: Yeah, I saw I that I, it was I on, but I didn't get it. a chance to see it. Um, it's it's playing on public television, and yeah, uh, and and I'm sure it will be accessible and maybe streamable. I'm I'm going to try and track it down um, because I I was very. Uh, very drawn to it. I, I think, is part two tonight, or was part
1: two... Uh, no,
5: it's over. No, oh. they play. it was Monday and Tuesday night. Oh, okay. I think it's just tonight, well, but... It's but, probably you know,
1: still on YouTube, isn't
5: it? I'm sure, I'm sure it's accessible that way, yeah. It's yeah. really good. Most just of those that, things are, yeah. The fight to who gets to vote, for instance, you know, and what does it mean to talk about freedom when the freedom only really applies to white men, and you know, uh, and originally, I mean, you guys are more uh, scholarly about the Constitution than I am. But, uh, you know, the whole idea that originally even it had to, you had to be a property owner
6: to be really? part of
5: it. And oh, they go into this whole thing about how they decided that the House of Representatives would be elected. And originally they were saying that the House of Representatives should appoint the senators. But then yeah. they did, went through this whole negotiation of setting it up for, you know, two senators per as it turned out to be state. So uh, that was fascinating. Right? All of that was discussed in great detail when they were making those decisions back and, the, and the senators
4: and, and the senators um, were appointed by the state legislatures. That's right.
1: Initially. And yeah,
3: initially until the right. early 20th yeah, century. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: That, that, that wasn't done until 100 years after the Constitution, I huh. believe. Go ahead. Well, senators became elected.
5: Right. So the things that we're talking about now, that we're struggling about now, it's just directly related to what those guys were talking about and and fighting over. And, you know, blood was shed over (laughs) it. Really interesting.
4: Well, let's see. I think I've got time to squeeze in one more. And this one uh, was kind of an interesting um, It just got my attention. It's actually kind of a nice uh, an interesting lead-in to to the X-Files. Former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin announced on Friday that she is running for Congress, seeking to fill the state's lone U.S. House seat after the death of longtime Representative Don Young. Palin, the Republican vice presidential nominee in 2008 and a conservative firebrand who helped stoke the anti-establishment sentiment that has engulfed the party since she ran alongside the late Senator John McCain years ago, said in a statement that she planned to honor the nearly five decades Young served in Congress by offering myself up in the name of service to the state he loved and fought for. America is at a tipping point, she said, as I've watched the far left destroy the country I knew I had to step up and join the fight. Palin joins a crowded field of candidates to succeed Young, the longtime Alaska representative who died last month at age 88. Although she is years removed from her last electoral bid, she enters the race as a household name in the state. A special primary will take place June 11th, and the special general election will take place on august 16th the same day as alaska's statewide primary the contests will be the first to use the state's new election system where all the candidates run on a single ballot in the primary and the top four candidates advance to the general election in Mm. the general election the winning candidate will be determined by ranked choice voting Is Sarah Palin still a contender in Alaska politics?
1: I think she's, she's made some bubbles. I think she's made some bubbles, <clears throat> But I think that women will be uh, particularly interested in her role. And I think that Republicans will be. Well, in the primaries, all Republican, But I still think that she stands out front among Republican uh, contenders. Hmm.
3: It'll be interesting yeah, I mean, to see how the rank choice voting yeah. plays a role there. I I, yeah. I wonder if if some people are going to rank her last. Uh, and I, I I really don't know how it's going to play out, but I I that could be a factor. Because I, I was not aware of the fact we were using ranked choice voting, and that. that may change that process in some way. Huh. But again, she's a well-known name, and that, that always happens. yes, yes, big plus. She's,
1: she's made, made a couple of mistakes.
5: Yeah, like Go what would you, like,
4: Go ahead, Jan.
5: Well, uh, I was just going to say if you think about what has happened in the Republican Party since she was in the, you know, in the headlines, um, I mean, now we have Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's like it's moved so far into the in the clown car territory since (laughs) her. She sort of started it, and now. These two girls are, you know, are taking it to <laughs> new, new, new depths of ridiculousness. Um, to build
4: off of something Paul said recently uh, about um, the Flint school board making the city council look good, I think uh, yeah. Marjorie Taylor <laughs> Greene has done the same thing for
3: Sarah Palin. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that looking, that kind of she looks almost normal now compared to some of the other. Yeah, that's
5: what I'm getting at. Yeah. I mean and and M- Madison Cosworth going to orgies do you think they have orgies up in uh, Alaska <laughs>
3: It's yeah. too cold for orgies there right
5: <laughs> i don't i
4: don't know and we didn't get to that story i had it in my notes and the question was is this what they mean by grand old party Um, that was actually going to be my lead into the x-files which is coming up right after this break we do have to take a break and uh, let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break if you're streaming us at tomsumnerprogram.com we have some messages as well so don't touch that dial don't click that mouse the uh, x-files Coming up in the final segment of today's edition of Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Hey.
5: <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now.
2: And now. And now, too. And even now.
4: Hey, welcome back, everybody, to Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner program and the uh, final segment, which always features uh, those weird and wacky stories we call the X Files. We start with uh, this one. A 60-year-old man allegedly had himself vaccinated against COVID-19 dozens of times in Germany in order to sell forged vaccination cards with real vaccine batch numbers to people not wanting to get vaccinated themselves. The man from the eastern German city of Magdeburg whose name was not released in line with German privacy rules, is said to have received up to 90 shots against COVID-19 at vaccination centers in the eastern state of Saxony for months until criminal police caught caught him this month, A German news agency DPA reported Sunday. The suspect was not detained but is under investigation for unauthorized issuance of vaccination cards and document forgery. He was caught at a vaccination center in uh, Islandburg in Saxony when he showed up for a COVID-19 shot for the second day in a row. Police confiscated several blank vaccination cards from him and initiated criminal proceedings. It was not immediately clear what impact the approximately 90 shots of COVID-19 vaccines, which were from different brands, had on the man's personal health. (laughs) German police have conducted many raids in connection with forgery of vaccination passports in recent months. Many COVID-19 deniers refuse to get vaccinated in Germany, but at the same time want to have the coveted COVID-19 passports that make access to public life and venues such as restaurants, theaters, swimming pools, or workplaces much easier. What do you think this guy would do for a Klondike bar? Yeah. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I don't know. It just just occurs to me, he's probably so, so immune, he could walk through a hospital and just go around shaking hands with people and he'd be all cured.
1: (laughs) You know, uh, this guy has really benefited science. He's a walking specimen of what's possible with these vaccines. He can survive 90 of these. And guess what? And we argue all the time. You can't if you take too much of it, you do this. If you take little, too little of it, it does that. But look at this guy. Various types of vaccines. He is a specimen that we ought to all hope that science will look at him and study him and study his brain as well. <laughs> yeah.
5: That would be yeah. it. <laughs> That's a great point. Hilarious. <clears throat> Yeah.
4: Well, <laughs> people donate items to classrooms and teachers all the time, but an Alabama school is turning around the theme by donating a missile and a tank like carrier painted red, white, and blue to a veterans <laughs> museum. An MGM-52 lance missile, once capable of delivering nuclear or conventional weapons before it was deactivated at the end of the Cold War, and an M752 launcher have sat outside the old Athens High School for decades. They were donated to the school's ROTC program in the 1970s, the News Courier reported. Whenever we had visitors call and ask for our location, we would tell them to just follow the tank, said James Chambers, (laughs) Senior Army uh, JROTC instructor. The building now houses Athens Middle School, and the equipment is being given to the Alabama Veterans Museum and Archives for restoration in coordination with Colin Day, chairman of the Limestone uh, County Commission, said uh, museum director Sandra Thompson. With the help of a towing company, a crew loaded the vehicle on a tractor trailer and hauled it to the museum recently. Thompson hopes the career and technical school can begin restoration work immediately, It adds to our collection and allows visitors to see what came before the technology that we have today, said Thompson. Does military hardware raise the debate about guns in schools to a whole new level? (laughs) That's
3: right. (laughs) (laughs) Tanks in schools. That's a good question.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) We have not condemned them yet, but the weapons of higher mass destruction we have.
4: (laughs) <laughs> the, the, the thing that struck me as, as particularly interesting about this was they had the tank, the actual launcher, uh-huh. but they had a missile, too.
5: Yeah, yeah. that's crazy. That
4: is
3: that's, crazy. That's I unusual. Mean, Most VFWs have got a tank in front of their building. but <laughs> But they don't I have any that.
4: ammunition. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but I'm sure the
1: missile was not loaded. Yeah. We I,
5: hope not.
1: Yeah.
4: Because the kids would have found out already.
5: <laughs> <laughs> oh, Marty, what a world.
4: Well, that was down in Alabama, and they don't have snow days, so... <laughs>
5: That's right, <yeah. laughs> um,
4: the nation's oldest active park ranger is hanging up her smoky hat at the age of 100. Betty Reed Soskin retired Thursday after more than 15 years at the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront National Historical Park in Richmond, California, huh. according to the National Park Service. Soskin spent her last day providing an interpretive program to the public and visiting with co workers. She led tours at the park and museum honoring the women who worked in factories during wartime and shared her own experience as a black woman during the conflict. She worked for the U.S. Air Force in 1942, but quit after learning that she was employed only because her super uh, her superiors believed she was white, <laughs> uh, according to her well, that's a good service thing. biography. That's <laughs> But my question is, although there are several questions to ask, um, but my question is, should retirement be mandatory at 100
1: <laughs> No, not if you can still move around. Yes, <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah,
3: that's right. Boy, well, what a great story that was.
5: That is a great one. Wow. She can that's still great. track
3: Smokey Bear around the park, I guess, so she's going to be all yeah. right. That, <laughs> is a lot, that has a lot of facets to it. And
1: I really
4: love that story. Well, here's here's a weird one. An Upper Peninsula city is closing a portion of a road to vehicular traffic every night to protect migrating salamanders. It, <laughs> the, the city of Marquette is closing a portion of Peter White Drive and Presque Isle uh, in the park from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. daily until April 15th, or until the migration is completed the city announced. The closures began on Monday. Road barricades will be placed and removed daily to prevent vehicular traffic in the migration area. Only foot traffic is permitted in the area. Protecting the blue-spotted salamanders' migration is vital as they are an indicator species informing us about the health of our environment. Kathleen Henry, a special projects coordinator and education specialist for the Superior Watershed Partnership, told the Mining Journal in an email. Should there be salamander crossing road signs? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: probably <laughs>
5: I, I think know.
1: the is not that healthy down here. The water's yeah. bad.
5: So I say any act of kindness for another species is just fine yeah. by me. That sounds I good. This, yeah. Uh, um, on my walks, you know, that I take every day around here, um, I've seen, you know, like the red-winged blackbirds w- are back. And yesterday I saw my first mallard duck down by Guilty Creek. They're back, I think. It's just and the and the gold fences are turning gold and it's just a it's a lovely thing so yeah I say yay salamanders.
3: Yep, salamander yeah. crossing signs. Yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh. And um, and and we should actually uh, capture a couple so that we can use them as models for drawing uh, congressional districts.
3: <laughs> That's right.
4: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, oh, that boy, would I be
5: can't. a good it, it a that's insurance. Yeah. <laughs> that is
3: funny
4: well that wraps up today's uh, edition of the X-Files and Armchair Politics and the Tom Sumner program I want to say thanks to Chris Douglas from University of Michigan Flint for joining me for the first hour but also Jan Worth Nelson from East Village Magazine it's always a treat when you're here Jan oh thank, thank
5: you, Jan. you so much it's my pleasure once again I love you guys
4: in good talking to you, Jen. And our roundtable regulars, uh, Paul Rosicki on the left and Henry Hatter on the right. Henry, it was great to have you back this week. Thank you both. Thank you. Well, Thank have you. a good evening. Good to be I'll here. See
5: good you morning. later. Okay. Okay. See you
4: bye. later. Bye. Okay, bye. And that wraps it up uh, for today's edition of the Tom Sumner program. And uh, that's smoking George Winters Tickling the Ivories. Let me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room but i'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the tom sumner program and i hope you will be too in the meantime good night everybody
0: the tom sumner program is a live variety show we want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show